Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dr. Gary Cooper, CEO and co-founder of Reaply. Reaply was a recent MCJ collective investment, which is our climate tech fund. They have a platform called Asset Exchange Manager that makes it easy and efficient for organizations in tech, government, retail, healthcare, and higher education to track and utilize the assets they already have before making a purchasing decision. The platform enables companies to share and sell physical assets within and between organizations. It turns out that organizations, especially big distributed ones, have a lot of stuff, and that stuff oftentimes gets underutilized and either ends up leading to unnecessary purchases or leads to things ending up in the landfill that otherwise didn't need to. Reaply helps address that, and we have a great discussion in this episode about their approach why it matters, their progress to date, some of the things that they're working on next, and also just a higher level discussion about how the circular economy and reuse ties into climate change and the clean energy transition. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Excited. Well, I'm excited to have you as well. And yeah, I mean, you know this story already, but for listeners, the first time that we met was on a, on a Zoom but it was on a Zoom when it was like right in the thick of the pandemic. And I think there was like a repair person in my house upstairs or something. So I didn't want to go upstairs. And there was like homeschooling with the kids. So they were in like the other room in the basement. So I actually took the call from my boiler room. Yes. Yeah. If you, yes. And you that remember was, that, I'm sure. Yeah. And we had a, a very oversubscribed round. I was like, that guy has to be in my company. Like, I have to have that guy on my team. 
there was something about doing that that really spoke to me. <laughs> well, like, I've tried it again. I, I tried kind of staging it and just going back in the boiler room, even though there's no reason to do it. But but nobody else has, has felt the same as boiler you. Boiler rooms so. are natural occurrences. You can't stage them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was fun. I haven't done that much laughing in a while, actually. It's a nice intro. But at any rate, welcome to the show. What's Reapley? Reapley is a software company based in Chicago that helps organizations scale reuse. So there is a lot of focus in the market when it comes to recycling, whether that be manual solutions, whether it be tech, whether that be robots and AI. I know all those people. They're amazing people. There's not a lot of people building in the reuse space. And so Reapley is trying to do that. Why does reuse matter? <laughs> reuse matters. Oh my goodness, can I write a dissertation in 30 minutes on this podcast? Reuse matters for at least two major reasons. One, it's a central part of this concept called the circular economy, which I know we'll talk a little bit about. But keeping materials in use as long as possible is like the cornerstone of the circular economy definition. The second is, is it's a way better alternative to, than recycling. We can't, one, manufacture our way out of the oncoming slot of climate change. We can't recycle our way out of the onslaught of waste that's produced by a current linear economy. So we have to have better solutions, both in the working world, but also for mom and pop at home. So Reapley is really focused right now on the working world and helping scale material reuse because we global recycling is at about 9% of success rate right now. So the problem is too hairy. And reuse is obviously the next best thing. And so we're just trying to build technology to make that super easy and valuable to some of the leading organizations in the world. And how, how did this all come about? Or, or if we go even further back, when did you first come upon this problem and why does it matter to you? Yeah, so my mother now, she finally knows what we're doing after five or six years of me running the company and she's been in asset management inventory management her whole life. And she's like, oh my gosh, I can see it. I saw this from you were a baby, but that's not where we, I got the idea of Reapley. Reapley and I never started, knew that element of the story that your mom yeah. actually worked in the industry. That's cool. Yeah, I actually didn't know that she was in inventory and asset management until about 30 days ago, which is really strange. But I love my mom. Hi, mom. So I came about Reapley organically in the lab. So... Nerd alert here, I did my PhD in neuroscience, really trying to find a cure for Parkinson's disease at Northwestern University in Chicago. I'm a faculty member there. We're still trying to commercialize a drug product that I, that I co-invented during my doctorate work, but it was just an observation. Labs have lots of materials, have lots of what I like to call stuff. And that stuff is super, super, super pricey and valuable. And as it turns out back then, just like now, and for the last 50, 60 years, labs in the United States have suffered from being underfunded. So I would have friends of mine who were just next door who were saying, you know, if I only had this antibody or that piece of equipment or whatever it might be, I might be able to pilot these experiments to then justify purchasing something so they can do more experiments towards some type of publication or finding. And I would go, oh, we have that stuff in my refrigerator or in a back room that we're not using or in a shelf that we've, thought we've forgotten about. And so just connecting the dots, I started a sharing program at Northwestern wherein I would pile things in a cart that we no longer needed in my lab and just share it to other people on the same floor who might not super 
like genius idea. It's like the eBay Pez dispenser. Exactly. <laughs> you know, just a little. I or see you use that analogy. I use the analogy of the ice cream truck man in the neighborhood who just comes around and who's just distributing sugar to all the kids, unbeknownst to the parents. So that's I was the ice cream man. I was the Pez guy, and. <laughs> It turns out I went into supply chain consulting work after my postdoctoral fellowship there. And people would still email me from Northwestern like, hey, Gary, where's the card? Where's the card? We need this. We need that. And I would think, I don't know. I've not been there for three or four years. I have no idea where a card is. But it struck me as something worth diving into a little bit. And so my best friend was and is a, a very senior web front-end web developer who for maybe nine years prior to that, I had pitched umpteen number of ideas, having nothing to do with sustainability, by the way. And all of those ideas he thought were just absolute trash. And so I remember one night after a few beverages. What was the worst idea? Um, I've forgotten them all, but if we have some time at the end, I'll tell you about some other bad new ideas that I have. Okay. So I pitched this idea to him after a couple of libations at a very early a.m. in the morning. And his first response, I just I, as though he's sitting here today, was not bad. And I tell you, it sounds crazy. That was the first validation that there was something to this idea. Because here's a guy who's worked in tech his whole life. I've not worked in tech. I've only just been this guy at the lab and starting to see some of these things in supply chain and bigger organizations. And for him to say, yes, this is somewhat interesting to me was validation of a sort. And so we started working on it. What did it say in the text? I just said this. I can't say it because we're on a podcast, but I did this. I just shook my head like, "Mm." it was a new day. It's like when you, the aha moment. But what what was the idea that he said not bad to? Oh, the idea of basically internal eBay, right? So basically something, if you're at a big organization, there's so many tools right now. I used to sell these tools to procure like e-procurement systems, P2P systems, all these things. But there aren't a lot of systems to save, right? When it comes to like sharing and saving within an organization, it really breaks down to like Brenda or Sam who knows everything or some like weird email chain or listserv, or if you're very advanced, some spreadsheet system. And so organizations put tens of millions of dollars to figure out how to procure better but they put almost no dollars in how to save. And that actually is the problems with the linear and the circular economy. So we thought it, he thought it was interesting from kind of a what's the market look like perspective. I thought it was interesting because I knew what it should look like to solve the problem in the lab at, at a university. And so there was the hallmarks of the, the, the can do and what it should be coming together and kind of co-founding a company. And we recruited his then boss who would come on as a CTO and us three founded the company back in 2015 and haven't looked back since. We've just been fighting, learning, laughing along the way. And maybe talk a bit about, and you just touched on it, but the the initial thesis that led you to found the company and then maybe talk a bit about from where you sit today, how that's evolved, if at all. Yeah, so the initial thesis of the company was, let's build a platform by which people could start their procurement journey by starting with things that had, wait for it, already been purchased and weren't being used. So if I'm at an organization and I'm a person, just to be clear, who's looking, who needs something, the question that Reapley Software started out trying to answer 
was do we already have it? And who has it and what condition is it in and how do I get it? It's evolved in such that the problem of reuse within an organization, scaling it across, you know, an organization like a Microsoft or Google or, you know, some of these, the U.S. Air Force, it's as hard as recycling, right? Recycling programs have taken a long time to be instituted. I think the results are meager, to to be quite frank. But it's not just implementing a tech product into a department and then walking away and everything works. Right, so you, you have to intersect with upstream suppliers, downstream recyclers and haulers, and community organizations who might take things from organizations already. You have to think about all of the value chain of how an item we call it the life of an asset, who touches it, who has to prove this, what P and L is it on, right? So there's complicated things outside of just me sharing something with another employee that we've taken the time to really learn and be able to help organizations scale, no matter if they're in the public sector, no matter if they're in the private sector. And we're really excited about the next 12 to 18 months of our growth and helping clients in the market. And putting Reaply aside, how big a problem is this issue of stuff that exists that could be useful within an organization that is not getting utilized? So the Federal Reserve kind of keeps these kind of numbers as it pertains to CapEx or capital expenditures. And according to the Federal Reserve numbers last year, if I remember correctly, about $630 billion of, there's a $630 billion of underutilized capacity within corporate America. So that does not include universities like I I talked about where we first started or the federal government. It really just includes for-profit commercial entities. And so there is a... I think the most massive opportunity globally is scaling a circular economy. And it's exactly because of that number from the Federal Reserve, which, again, is probably quite conservative. And within that $630 billion, I, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but just generally, what are some of the key categories and how does that pie chart break down? I don't need exact numbers, but just a sense. Yeah. So some of the big areas to think about are manufacturing equipment are what we like to call built environment materials. So that would be concrete and plastics and steel and organics like wood. Third would be, we call RUS, real estate and workspaces materials, R-E-W-S. One can think of that as the things that you use to do your work, right? So desks, chairs, monitors, things that are peripheral to your computer, and then e-waste so that probably needs no explanation, cell phones, tablets, computers, hard drives. So those are some. There's also capacity in physical storage. So literal buildings that are being lit, that have, you know, are pulling out energy, but no one's occupying them or they're severely under-occupied. So again, it's really just connecting the dots. One of the guiding theses I have about the company right now is that we don't actually know what is in our physical world. We have no record of that. We think we do. But COVID taught us a really interesting lesson. One might recall the governor of New York and maybe many other governors blasting out, hey, does anyone have any ventilators or masks? This is the governor of New York in the middle of a pandemic. We came in, locked down the number of ventilators, which have to be finite and easily countable in a state like New York. Never mind if someone's looking for some type of brick or concrete for a building? That's an even harder question to ask, right? So, so what Reapley is really trying to do at large 
you know, maybe two, three years from now is really build a Google for physical assets, really be able to help people understand where the physical things are in the world so that we can make better procurement decisions. Because when we don't know where things are, we go purchase because the linear economy has made it very, very easy for us to go online and get things in less than two days. We need to make that as easy on the secular side. And so we're trying to do that at Reaply. But it, it does take some time. But having done an eight-year PhD, I have the patience and the grit to get it done. <laughs> uh-huh. And maybe talk a little bit about the profile of customers that you're targeting and the, the value proposition that you lead with for those customers as well. Yeah, so our customers tend to be Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. If we're talking about the commercial sector, we got our our founding DNA is in the university. We work with over 20 universities from Yale to Northwestern to state schools. And then, of course, we work in the, the public sector with cities like Chicago, the U.S. Air Force, the NIH. Our typical profile or use case is this. An organization tends to have many locations, so different physical locations. They tend to have a large and kind of broad portfolio of physical assets and resources. So things from couches to chemicals to big machinery to make things. And they typically have decentralized operations, right? So, you know, I'm in location one and we purchase things for location one and I'm in location two and we purchase things for location two. And so that tends to be our kind of typical customer profile and examples of this would be like retail. So, you know, a a retail organization having lots of locations. Another example of this would be someone like Google or Microsoft who do a lot of e-manufacturing. Another example of this would be biopharma or, or, or healthcare organizations who order masses of material to do either science or to help patients. You don't skimp when you're trying to help patients and do research but then you have all this extra stuff just sitting around figuring out what do I do with it? So those are, hopefully that's a little bit helpful and instructive of who we typically help and kind of target. And what's the pitch to those companies? What do they get for working with Reaply and why should that matter to them? Yeah, so the pitch is like, hey, we tend to lead with financial because the great thing about the circular economy as a business model, circularities, excuse me, as a business model is that it is net bottom line positive. So it's not an investment, as I think some people, I don't really actually like that word, but some people would call general sustainability projects. When you're adopting a circular business operational model, what you're saying is there's some way that we can squeeze out more margin while also squeezing away things like waste or carbon. So our pitch typically to customers like, hey, you want to make more money and be more green? I mean, quite frankly, that's it. That's literally our mission statement, to help empower employees to save money and be more sustainable. That's literally our mission statement. So the way we kind of break that down is we ask like a procurement leader or sustainability leader, hey, do you have, how many different locations do you have? Or do you have storage warehouses? Great. And the answer typically is yes to that. Great. So if I was an employee in one of those, how would I make an informed purchase not knowing what's in, from a material perspective, not knowing what's in the other. And there's a normal back and forth there. And then kind of we can also do a spin analysis. And so we can kind of get it and say, hey, what if you were able to save 2 or 3% from a certain category? That helps us also get to an ROI in the business case. But there are other things that we do financially as a part of the, uh, non-financially, I should say, as a part of the pitch 
that are important. So one is all of these organizations will have some type of net zero to win goal initiative strategy. So we help them get to their stated net zero goals, either by embodied carbon reduction, either by net zero waste. Third is employee engagement. So employees, they want to work for organizations who care about sustainability and they want to be engaged in such. So that's another thing that we do. We actually gamify the whole platform. So as employees do things that are more sustainable and help the organization save money, we give them points and each month we issue out like a $500 Visa gift card to the top performing employee. So you get green for being green. And then the fourth is engaging the community. So when items are no longer needed within an organization on our platform, we connect to schools and nonprofits and other small businesses within the community that our client is in. So that material cannot flow to the landfill, not flow to a recycler at first, but flow to another organization who can actually reuse it. And so that kind of CSR is also typically a part of some type of DEI initiative that our organizations will be enabling or trying to scale. So we help organizations beyond sustainability and beyond kind of financial value props. And I just want to kind of bring a little bit of clarity to that as well. Uh-huh. And do you find if you look across organizations within sectors and or across sectors as well, are the fertile areas for improvement consistent across companies and across industries, or is it all over the map? It's so consistent. It's one of the things I would have never bet going into starting this company, especially as a first-time founder, that some of the problems that Google we help Google with are some of the same problems that we're helping Yale University with, are some of the same problems that we're helping the NIH with. It would sound strange because you're like, does Google have labs and does... Yale care or does I care anything more than chemicals and things to do research? And the answer is yes. Every organization has to have chairs and computers, and every organization that manufactures something has a set of things that all of them have to manufacture. And so, as you start to put the puzzle piece together, we actually don't we don't bucket our industries by traditional sorts like big industrial, big tech, biopharma. We say those in the public so people know what we're talking about. But we actually just think about use cases. So when an, an organization asks us, like, hey, Gear, we have, we have $100 million of furniture. Help us reuse that. It's the same rules and use cases as any other client when it comes to furniture reuse. Same with IT reuse, same with chemical reuse, same with equipment reuse. It's really not by vertical. It's actually by use case. And so that's the really, really cool thing that we figured out is launching our technology per use case allows us to help many, many organizations all with the same platform. And when you think about more centralized offices where there tend to be less of them and bigger versus smaller and more distributed, and then same question when you think about remote work versus in-person work, are there certain types of customers that you're better equipped to serve today? And then same question for ultimately? Yes. So one of the things that kind of laid in our lap was, and I always speak very softly and carefully about COVID and the realities of it, but for Reaply, it was an accelerant to our business. And one of the reasons it is, was, is because, uh, I say was because hopefully people are getting vaccinated who are listening, but the flexible remote work kind of paradigm that we're all operating in 
is great, but what it does for an operating company, let's say like a Microsoft, is it makes it one day I had you know a hundred locations, and so maybe one could argue I had a hundred different silos that technology like Reaply could help remove. Now will their workforce of about fifty five thousand employees in the United States goes remote, presumably no one of them knows what's in the other person's house, right? So you've only increased the amount of invisibility of assets, of sharing for people who would be on-prem to do so. So a technology like Reaply, and I hope, hey, more competitors, please come in the market, but a technology like Reaply is super helpful to drive reuse, even when you're outside of kind of that HQ or that HQ2, on which I know a lot of people are, are familiar with. And so as more organizations go more to a remote or a permanent flex model, it does mean that technology like Reaply would be even more valuable, notwithstanding the idea of net zero waste, which of course is a kind of calls into our solution as well. And when you think about either objections or criteria that make companies not as positive a prospect or, or even just barriers in in general, what are the biggest things that do hold back wider adoption and correspondingly more reuse in these organizations? Yeah, so two observations. So the first observation is, although circular economy is kind of new, but industrial ecology is very old as a concept, and reuse is very old as a concept. I mean, I was taught it in grade school. Companies are very, very, very at the beginnings of their kind of reuse and circular journey. There are very few companies, I would say, are mature, have 100% circular operations. In fact, I can't even think of one. And I I think I know a lot of the people in this space and operating. We're trying to get there as an industry. So I would say, one, it is being nascent, like not knowing what to know, not knowing what solution to develop. So we've actually found that being informative, pooling insights, aggregating data, aggregating solutions is something that even beyond our technology that we can help just the general market. And and I know we can talk a little bit about the reuse initiative, but that's exactly what the reuse initiative was, was to really spotlight reuse to give a 20 plus page deck about how an organization can go from nothing to reuse in the market without Reaply, without Reaply, just in general. So that's one, just general knowledge and really a focus in my mind on recycling and not a focus completely around circularity. The other is, and I say this kindly, our forebearers in the asset management and inventory management space have made a mess of things. There are clients that I I won't name because I'm under certain NDAs that have 15 different asset management systems, right? So when you go in and ask a question, like I started at the beginning, How would an employee know if something existed here? You get 15 different answers. And so for an organization like us, that means that we have to first coalesce all that data, coalesce all the headaches potentially around change management into one tool so that everyone can be on one platform. So I would say the two kind of things that I I lay awake trying to think about how to make faster are more education to the market. And then second, just knowing that for some companies, the older, the worse, actually, they have scar tissue around change management and as well as their their current technology infrastructure around resource or asset management 
is lacking. Uh huh. And you talked a little bit about the buckets of ROI, but when you go to set expectations regarding quantifying that ROI and timelines, what kind of expectations do you set and and deliver against to the extent that you have any case studies to share and talk about? Yeah, so we have four published case studies on our website, reapley.com, and we've actually won two awards based on two of those case studies. Actually, 2019 and this past year, 2020, we took home the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council, or SPLC's Circular Economy Leadership Award for work that we did both with the mayor here in Chicago, but also with Northwestern, one of our first customers in MIT. So what we typically say, though, is, you know, returning your investment from Reapley, you can see within the first three to six months. So the way that we power our partnership agreements is that we power them so that the customer is, from a dollar perspective, is getting a return on investment within the first two quarters after we launch there. From an impact perspective, we actually hope to have that before we actually launch. So we we do kind of like what we call a pre-launch. So we have our own criteria before we're able to launch at an organization. Again, that's that's their own nascency, and that's us coming in and kind of being a thought leader and saying, hey, we think the platform should look like this. So we actually get to how much waste we can divert, or at least what we say in our business proposals, within the first week or two after we launch. Just to give an example, at the University of Chicago, we launched in September of 2019, which sounds so strange. I had to think about that because of COVID. 2019. And in the first three days, we'd saved them almost a million dollars in, in spend and diverted, I think, something like 1.2 metric tons of waste from landfill in three days. So, you know, it, it you don't get that. I mean, I used to install IBM Maximo, SAP's tooling, uh, Oracle tooling when I was at Ernst & Young. You don't get that kind of ROI in case studies with installing those tools. So we're really, really proud of that. And we worked very, very hard the first couple of quarters once we launch a client for that to be so. Uh And I I feel like there's a lot of talk about decarbonization. There's maybe less talk about reuse and circular economy. And then the talk that there is, it feels like it's, it's almost like it's a separate and distinct group of people that talk about that versus climate change. And it's almost like, like the energy efficiency problem where, where it's like, well, it's just efficiency. We need like nuclear, we need long duration storage, we need, you know, we need electric planes, we need like tangible, big equipment and plants. And right, it's like, you're just gonna like, put some insulation in these buildings? Like, <laughs> you know, like, I, come on, really? Yeah. Right. And, and, and so I guess, what would you say to, to the people that maybe would say something like, well, Reuse feels good, and I'm glad that it's out there, but it's really not going to move the needle on addressing climate change in the way that we need to. Yeah. First of all, I want to talk to those people. You're my people, and I want to convince you. I want to preach to you, get you into my my parish of believing, and convert you. But two things. The first is, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, these aren't mutually exclusive solutions that we have to bring to market and fast. Right. So if we completely made our entire energy grid worldwide green, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and Google's a white paper, I think in 2019, 
they showed that you only get to abating the effects of climate change by about 55%. So the other portion of that, the other 45% comes from scaling a circular economy globally. And again, our take at Reaply is you can't do that unless you know where everything is. If you don't know where everything is, you can't make things circular, right? So that's one. The leaders in the field just disagree scientifically with that thinking. But the second thing is, it's quite obvious. We just got, we have a book club at Reaply. We just got done reading Bill Gates's book of how to avoid a climate disaster, a good book for, for people to read, I would say. And one of the things that I think was stark to know from the people who work at Reaply was how much manufacturing stuff contributes to our global emissions, our global greenhouse emissions, our carbon equivalent emissions. And as it turns out, and I forget the stat now, but if something like eight of the Fortune 50 companies were to meet their 2050 goals, it reduces like global greenhouse emissions by like 20%. So the real take home here is that actually material reuse and recycling are part and parcel of the actual way that we globally get to zero. You cannot create electric planes and plant like cows and, you know, everything is green, but keep manufacturing thing at the same clip that we're currently and expect us to kind of get to any state that we all wish we want to be. So it's just a part of the solution. And one of the things I'm super excited about, Jason, to that point is Reaply is going to be working with Microsoft and a couple others to bring to market the first kind of calculator to calculate how much my reuse is helping me reduce carbon, right? At least embody carbon. And so one of these things that we always talk about from an impact perspective is waste to landfill and reducing that. And that's a very traditional metric. But we want to get closer to the sheet of music that everyone else is on, right? Which is reducing global emissions, mostly CO2. And so we're going to actually put that in our tool for our customers. And so as they look to report from an ESG perspective or just for their own perspective, as employees look to think about how their work is affecting the, the company's goal, they'll be able to see it right in line on our tool. Now, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways to to make sure. So it, it sounds like Reaply is focused on helping companies understand what stuff is already in their possession so that they can either reuse it or find it a home that where it can continue to be utilized versus ending up in the landfill. How important is buying better stuff to begin with from a you know from an ingredients standpoint and packaging standpoint and also how important is it that you're buying from companies who also clean up their own footprints and that of their supply chains? And are those areas that Reaply focuses on or is that somebody else's lane? Yeah, so, so important. So the canonical definition of the circular economy is three-legged. So the first part is to design materials that last a long time, right? To keep those materials in use as long as possible. That's the reuse part that we talked about before. And then the third is to regenerate natural systems. I've actually posited and written an opinion piece of we need to add a fourth bullet to the definition of circular economy, which is to connect the value chains, which gets into some of the work that we're doing at Reaply. But it is so important that OEMs, manufacturers, 
develop products that can actually be reused. Again, one of the things that will come from Reaply in the out years is we'll start to collect data about which products can be reused, which product, how many times they can be reused, how many different types of you know, jobs can they be reused at. And that data might be very, very interesting for both a product designer at a company, but also a procurement leader who might be toggling between two different brands on something. So more to come in that in the, in the coming years. But I think it's centrally important that, I'll give you an example like Ikea, furniture makers make things more modular so that when I get done using the couch this way, I can use these pieces to make a chair, right? Or it's, it's easy to put blocks together as opposed to having to recycle. So I think it's central. As it comes to regenerating natural systems, hey, we only have one. I always say until Elon figures it out, the only rock that I know that we can live on is this one. And it's hard to recreate natural systems when you've exhausted them all. So I think those two legs are as important as keeping things in use. I just don't think any of it can exist unless you're actually connecting the economy. So what I said back in at Verge, at GreenBiz, again, light years ago, but actually a year ago, right before COVID, was before we build a circular economy, we need to build a connected economy. We need to think about the economy like a, like the circular economy, like a brain, like a closed loop system. And the, the great thing about the brain is pretty connected. That's how it stays conserved. It's not just like it's in a, in a box somewhere. It's actually, it's just, it's super connected. And we need to do that with our economy uh, as it comes to circularity. So when I think about incentives, because if there's one thing I've learned in the few years that I've been trying to learn about climate change, it's just how much things like incentives matter beyond just which solutions are better or worse. And I think about Apple, just as one example, and the and changing the power cord around on a new device such that when I get that new device, I need a new power cord or changing the shape so that I need new accessories or, or things like that. I mean, they want to sell more product and they want to sell product at faster turns. So they want obsolescence. They want their stuff to become outdated. Their business depends on it. And so how big an issue are these incentives as it relates to the stuff makers? Because I can't imagine they like the replays of the world, given that it means slower turns and more reuse and less new product purchases. And and then subsequently, since I seem to always ask my questions in twos, where else are the blockers like that? If you look across the landscape of stakeholders that matter, that might be creating some friction around this type of reuse happening more broadly. Yeah. So makers love us. And if they don't love us, they, quite frankly, I should reach out to me. I'm Gary at Reaply.com. I'll tell you why you should love us. And the central reason is I can't believe you're actually a PhD because you are the consummate salesman. No matter how much time I spend with you, that's just reinforced for me again and again and again. Like, I don't think that's a common thing for PhDs. No. So you, you are a true unicorn, Gary. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, no but uh, <laughs> let, let me tell you, in the annuals of trying to talk about a drug for Parkinson's disease, you got you to gotta sell your research. You got you to gotta pitch it. So I, I've learned to try to be somewhat convincing, if not at the expense of just being ignorant. But- I think that those people who would think that the makers, this is what they should focus in on. It's a much, much business business model to take back your things and to do something with them. I shouldn't have anyone who's in supply chain or procurement 
shouldn't even need an explanation to why that is the case. Every single electronic manufacturer that I could talk to, from Intel to Amazon to Logitech to Google, are all thinking about, if not already have on market, some type of product as a service, device as a service, take back program that's not super great, but they're trying to make it better. Dell's another one I've recently spoken with. So the entire market is moving towards, give me back what I sold to you. I'm going to like reuse part of it because why? It's cheaper and more efficient manufacturing. And I feel better and my customer feels better about that whole experience. So one, it's just a better business model. 100%, 1,000%, I'm happy to argue with anyone on it. Now, the peop- where we find friction is, who wants trash? That would be the recyclers, and I put that in air quotes. That would be the haulers. And in some cases, and they're friends and partners of that, that's some of the liquidators. So there are very entrenched people who, and I don't want to state their names here, but who literally own trash who have contracts to say, your trash is mine. If you can't say their names, can you at least say their address and social security number? What, what, I, can, <laughs> what, what, what I can say is, in most cases, their names are two part or one part. <laughs> so they're in the business of having people chuck stuff in a bin to never see it again, to charge people for that, to charge people to buy the recycled materials that they shuffle them with. So yes, if there was a system that created less waste, really, it seemed to me that those organizations wouldn't really like that. So how do they create that friction? They create that friction by having long-term contracts with folks where they... Oh, you mean the friction with Replay? Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, there are many ways that they could create that friction. What I should say is, to date, right, it's still super, super freaking easy to throw something away. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Everyone listening to this has thrown something away and thought, can I recycle that? Could I reuse that? But you just want to get it out of place, out of mind. And so they create friction for Reaply the more efficient that is. Like, at a very high level, the more efficient it is for you just to pitch something and not think about it, the more efficient, the more efficiently it, it affects Reaply's reuse business. So what we got to do and what our jobs is, is to make it as slick and easy and I would say, don't have to think about it, a process to reusing something, right? And so that's what I'm saying is like, we're really at a nascent journey for certain organizations. I'll give you this really great example at the World Bank that I know of. They did a study, they were trying to figure out, you know, they have about 10,000 people working in their D.C. office. So in this office building of 10,000 bankers, they thought, you know, could we create better recycling metrics, less waste? So what they did is they went and they removed all of the at-desk trash bins from every single desk on all the floors. And they just had one big bin in the middle of each floor where everyone would have to throw stuff away at. And they were able to, in three months divert 90% of new waste. And when they did a survey and looked at it, it was just, one, it wasn't as convenient, right? There weren't waste receptacles by by your feet. And two, there was a little bit of, like, negative FOMO. Like, I got to go throw something away. I'm in the middle of the room. Ah, I don't want to do that. So me, to answer your higher-level question, we've made the linear economy of take, make, and dispose 
so freaking easy. And so anytime a business tries to make that even easier, Amazon having a purchase now button or waste companies having a bigger bin outside your apartment building or outside your workplace. Yes, that makes it a little harder on us people who are trying to be work upstream around reuse. But I would say the market is changing and good luck to our competitors. Uh huh. And when you think about things outside of your control or Reaply's control, what's the most impactful thing outside of your control that if changed would be the greatest boon to reuse and circular economy? And so what would you change and how would you change it if you had a magic wand? I think a lot of people talk about carbon tax and I don't want to take our time talking about that. Obviously, that would affect us in a very positive way. I want to get a little bit more granular. I think that we've seen it in Europe. I think if the government, and I'm not actually sure if this is federal or state, you know, I'm not a lawyer and my federalism still is at a is at a junior school level of knowledge, but my thinking would be a government in the United States could- You're a PhD and a consummate salesman. You could just be a lawyer like in your- <laughs> I've had to I, learn contract law in this. I've had to learn contract <laughs> law in this job. I, I, I've, I've never seen as many commas and sentences until I started this job. But I would say, you know, it has different names for different people, but extended producer's responsibility or extended manufacturer's responsibility laws, right? So if I produce something- I have a responsibility to its in life. If laws or policies go into effect that require people who produce things to think about where they go after the intended end user is done, that's going to very, very, very positively affect Reaper's business from a policy perspective. Again, the big manufacturers already know this, and they're doing it because it's a better business model to take back their bottles, to take back their packaging, to take back their raw ingredients to their product. They're doing it, in my mind, sloppily, and they need better technology. And so we, amongst other companies, are trying to help with that. But when a government start requiring that of producers and manufacturers, it will be a new day when it comes to reverse logistics and, and return and all these things that are kind of still kind of like not super efficient right now. So that would be one. But obviously, I would also say the government itself being a buyer of green things. The government has a massive buying power. It could actually erect whole markets, a la SpaceX, by itself. And so to me, the government also just starting to buy more green products, greening solutions within the operations of the government, to me is also something that I would love to see. But I think from a policy perspective, having people who create things have a responsibility to their end life is something that I think would be game changing. And again, there are already markets that already are doing this. And so I'm excited about that moving to the North American market more quickly. It reminds me of like the voluntary versus compliance offset markets. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And so if you want to be behind that game and just wait for the government to do something, okay. But then like, you're going to be behind in a way that we might not have seen since the last revolution. Because if you have a pretty smooth reverse logistics kind of workflow throughout the entire value chain, not just to the end customer, but to your supplier, right? People who do the business, the business transactions, you're going to be so ahead of the game. And so I, I spend my day talking to supply chain leaders, sustainability leaders, procurement leaders, and they're all thinking about how do I do this and lead 
as opposed to wait to a government rights of policy doc and me to follow. That's not creating business value. That is skirting the lines and just trying to stay stay up, right? People are trying to figure out how do we use this green movement to be better and to make a better business model. And so I encourage, and we write a lot about that at Reaply. So we write a lot about, and you asked this earlier question I didn't respond fully to, we write a lot about issues even outside of reuse and outside of kind of circular economy. So we have a blog that we that we publish monthly on LinkedIn called The Sustainable Business. And, you know, it has about 45,000 subscribers. And we just write about business issues, about creating more sustainable business. It's hard. It's necessary. It's hard. And so we just try to create topics and just have people have open discussions about what they're doing, what they're seeing, share best practices, and just kind of continue the march towards net zero. Key replete priorities in the next 12 months. What are they? So internal to the company, hiring. So we have we have not raised a lot of money. We've historically had some issues with that, quite frankly. And we did a successful Series A this past February. And so we are hiring to kind of support the business that the company is trying to do. The third would be we have a million a million go at Reaply. So in the next 12 months, we want to have a million assets that are in circulation on our platform. That th- 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 There's no company that's ever done that. And so we're, I'm not sure if we can get there, but we're going to freaking, freaking try. So our million dollar goal, or our, our million item goal, rather, internal operations. And then third, what I'm really, really interested in is a potential project to kind of help us get to the consumer level. So there's a, there's a couple of companies that we're working with. We're traditionally just a B2B org. So we help business to business create circularity. But we have an opportunity to work with a, a big electronic manufacturer around return reuse for the customers. And we're super excited about exploring that. So those are two or three of the, the biggest priorities. The other is quite frankly, and I say this not just in Jess, but to smile and to keep learning. I think one of the things I'm super tenant of the company is just making sure that people really enjoy this journey. This is really, really hard work. There's lots of questions that are unanswered. We're creating a market that doesn't exist. And the people who we work with are at the very beginning of their own knowledge set. And that can be sometimes frustrating for even the most energetic person. So, you know, for us, it's all about not being boring, about smiling but also being impactful. And so that's another thing that I always try to keep as a priority is keeping the, the energy high, for sure. So in addition to moonlighting as a lawyer, you could also moonlight as a coach, I'm finding, as you're because I'm getting pumped up <laughs> as you're talking to me here. You should be pumped up. I tell people, <laughs> hey, when you join Reaply, hey, by the way, if anyone's out there thinking about joining Reaply, reaply.com forward slash careers, we're looking for you, whoever you are. Hey, we're building technology to save the working world. That's something to be pumped up about. It might not work, but if it works... You can tell your grandmother about that versus the job that you did at the hot dog stand, you know, and, you know, senior year of high school. So I take very seriously the people who come to work here for a day, for an intern, for a year, for five years, and to give a little bit of their working life to a big, hairy problem that I think is tractable. It needs technology. It needs patience and passion. And, you know, if I have breath and if I'm leading Reaply, we'll have at least those things. So our last two questions. One is, if Reaply is successful beyond your wildest dreams, what have you achieved? I pause to just buffer on that because I could go on forever. There is more equity 
with materials in the world. We didn't talk about climate justice, but I think that's a direct impact of what we're doing and a direct impact of the circular economy. So I think there's more people doing things. I think there is zero waste. The word waste, I would love to design out of our lexicon. I hate seeing it on receptacles. Waste. Why not recycle? Why not reuse? This is the reuse bucket. So I would say, yeah, we have some crazy goals when it comes to like diverting waste, tonnage, how much money we want to save customers. But to bring it out of a KPI, would love to just see that people are thinking about reuse as their first option versus procuring and versus disposing. That would be an outcome that I'd that I'd be proud to have had a helping hand in. I'd love to double click on that. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection between reuse and justice? Absolutely. So also, I've written a, a great blog on this on the sustainable business. So please- We can go, link to all of these, yeah. by the way, in the show notes. So just, yeah, just make sure yeah, you have those links. Go and, well, please go and ask some comments. It's, it's an open discussion. But so one of the things that's pretty apparent is that the linear economy has gotten us to vast wealth disparities. I live in Chicago. I come to you here in Chicago today. And the difference between a person living on the north side of Chicago, where I am, and one living on the south side could not be any bigger, whether it be health outcomes, whether it be life expectancy, and yes, whether it be their average income. And if you look and trace, and I'm doing this with the mayor's office, if you look and trace where all the landfills are, guess where they are? South side. And when you think about so Were you waiting the, for me to answer, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> I, was I didn't want to interject, but it's, I, I feel like I left you hanging there. So if you have all of the economic problems on one side, if you have all of the waste and toxicity going to one side, and then just genetically, there are some things that African-Americans are predisposed to, like things like asthma, you start to get to a place where it's like, huh, what if we didn't have these landfills for one? But two, what if things weren't moving to this community because they were end of life and needed to be landfilled? What if they're moving to these communities for them to use them as stock to create new businesses, right? For them to have things from a university that they don't need anymore that they can use for their small barbershop or they can use for their small beautician shop or whatever it may be. And so to me, and there's, again, there's a more learned and fuller description of this on the sustainable business, but it is very apparent that the circular economy can actually be a more equitable one, both from an income perspective, but also from a health outcomes perspective. And, and I keep saying that the green movement can't actually be green, right? It has to be white and black and yellow and of all, everyone has to be involved or it doesn't work. This is one of the central premises in Bill Gates' book. We can't just develop all these solutions in the most developed worlds or just on the north sides of Chicago. It has to be implemented in the developing countries and the parts and the neighborhoods that have been left behind in the, in the current economy. And so I think climate, the climate movement is a way to bring more justice to the economy, not just to make our planet a little bit more sustainable to live on. And I'm curious, that's such an important point. How much does that come up when you talk to financial investors and how much does that come up when you talk to customers, if at all? Customers, it comes up all the time. We had a call with an organization whose name rhymes with Oodle 
that literally said to us, hey, we want to do this other part, but we only care about like how we can move stuff that we can't use to the community. That's literally our only value prop right at this moment. Financial people, I think, and I, and I say this because I have to deal with them, obviously, you know, I'm always in fundraising mode. But I think there is a, a fascination with transaction fees. Because obviously what's happening when I move value from one organization to another, a platform like Reapy is going to take some type of like servicing fee. That is true. And that part of the business and the illustrative B2B marketplace has still never been built. And every investor who's in marketplaces wants one. We think we have a way to do that. But what I will say is that that's not where the special sauce is for me. The special sauce is the data. So I always say, like, you know, to my financier and investment types, yes, you know, having transactional revenue or just transactions is so interesting and so cool. And yeah, it might be easier than a SaaS solution to sell. But the more interesting thing is not what money we're taking from or what money is being exchanged. The more interesting thing is who needs what and when and why and where is it and what condition was it in. That data in itself is more monetizable in my mind than an eBay-like transaction. So... I have a little bit of more convincing to do on the on the kind of funder or financier side, but for customers, no. I mean, every customer we talk to has some type of CSR goal, but even beyond a goal, it just feels right. Right now, there are millions of kids who don't have the right computers and the right monitors to do at-home learning. And I could send through hundreds of articles that talk about all the e-waste that we create just in the United States. So it's the same thing at Northwestern when I started the company. It's the same thing for every client. You have this juxtaposition of surplus and scarcity, right? How can that happen? And so you do need technology to kind of level that out and spread the love, spread the materials to where they can be best used and away from landfill. And given the diverse audience who listens to the show, different functions, different industries, different stages, different geographies. Where do you need help and what kinds of people might you want to hear from? Oh, boy. So we're, we're always interested to meet customers who are in their reuse journey or who recycling is not working for them or they need something better than recycling. So, you know, customers, the more that we have, right, the more that we can power the network to work. So that would be one. But beyond that, we're always looking for thought partners, if not actual operational partners. So sometimes that looks like people who are third-party logistics companies who can help us move things from one customer to another. Sometimes that looks like data companies who have data about certain products that we can pipe in and help our customers make informed procurement decisions. Sometimes that looks like people who have contacts in certain governments or people in in the public sector. You know, for a company our size, it's super hard to penetrate Fortune 1000 companies and it's super hard to sometimes penetrate the public sector. So anytime people have relationships that we can leverage and just tell our story, you know, if you don't buy our story, that's fine. We would love those partners. So anyone who has any knowledge about reuse, carbon accounting when it comes to reuse, circular economy, we love to hear from you. You can reach us at circularity at reaply.com that comes to all the founders. Or if you are a company that makes stuff, we probably could help you. So we would love to hear from you as well. Gary, anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I say this straightforwardly without a smile. Reuse is better than recycling. They're both and, not either or. 
we need to put more energy into having material use within companies and between companies as we've put through just throwing things in a bin and hoping someone recycles them, which almost never happens. So my challenge, my parting challenge would be for any person here working at a company to ask, do you guys have reuse? How are you doing that? And if those answers are, I don't know, please go to reefy.com forward slash reuse. We literally have a free action plan that you can download. It's colorful and smart. But if you want to have, ask more questions, hit us up at circularity at reefy.com. We would love to chat. Well, thanks so much, Gary. I really enjoyed this discussion. I'm so proud to be involved with you and the company through the fund and wishing you and the Ripley team every success in your important work. We'll take all the wishes. Thank you, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.